But how many of us have thoughts about writing a book or know somebody that has thoughts about writing a book? And how many of us actually managed to complete it or know somebody that actually managed to complete it? So not only has Winifred been this international amazing businesswoman, but she's written three books. She's an international business executive. She's an engineer and doctorate researcher, writer and storyteller, and mother of three. So today, I'm going to be asking you, Winifred, to share your story. We know each other from a few months back. You've been a great supporter to me, what I've been going through in my life, trying to motivate and get me to believe in finishing my ideas and projects. And we all know there's nothing more difficult than trying to grow your own idea. It's easy to have an idea. It's another thing to grow it. So I want to ask you, Winifred, what, what is it that you've been doing? Now we're going into spring. It's time for ideas and all these things we've been thinking about over the winter depression to fall away. What is it that you tell yourself and how do you help yourself to grow your ideas and actually be this author and amazing international businesswoman that you are? Well, I'm really, really honored to be here today, uh, to be the first uh, in this amazing series. And uh, uh, Lavan, you're a wonderful person full of ideas and growth and an inspiration to very many. So thank you for having me here. And it's good to be back in Holden. Uh, I was working for Nexus for eight years and a great many contracts. Uh, and my heart was here, maybe not with the the French shareholders, but Gutta uh, på Gulvet, that's where my heart always is. Uh, Springs here, um, as Laban said, I've written a few books. Um, and it's a, it was bloody time I got done with that. I've been writing since I was uh, 12, 13 years old. I've always been a storyteller, but I've also, also always been very afraid to expose uh, my ideas and my, my, myself. Uh, because it's a personal, it's a personal brand in a way. It's a, pr- a personal thing. It's a seed from within. So what I would write, I would send only to a few circle of friends. So for years, before there were bloggers, before people wrote, I wrote weekly epistles and stories from my life, which I shared only with friends. And later, I started writing uh, a short list on Facebook which was also very private, and because I did not want to reveal who I was, I wrote under a pseudonym. So I have been writing for many years. Now, uh, spring is coming time for creation. I think the theme here is understanding and accepting that time is finite and that we are mortal. So the key and leverage for me to actually start publishing was coming to terms with that fact very heads-on with the COVID. I got ill. I got ill for a very long time. I was in a very difficult situation. And at some point, I thought, I just might die. When I was at a point of 16 kilos less and I could no longer carry my own weight, I went back to the seed of me. What is it I don't want to die with me inside? What do I want to leave outside of me? And when everything was stripped of me, when I was bare, the only seed I had left was my word. And so I decided, come hail or high water, I will write, I will publish, and if people don't like what I write, screw them. That's where I needed to to get my bravery, to get there. And uh, I took the approach from, uh, from a gardening perspective. I'm an avid gardener. I can't wait for spring. And 
Uh, my nails are always painted on Monday because I need to cover the dirt from the weekend. That's the fact. And when you're a gardener, you know, in the winter, there's very little you can do, at least in Norway, there's very little you can do. You need to plan. What are you going to plant? What are you going to sow? You know, we all have a lot of good ideas. We want to write, we want to create, we want to paint, we want to dance, we want to make all these wonderful creations. But if you don't aim that target to, at the beginning of next season, I want to do tomatoes, I want to do peppers, you will never get to it. So my approach was, okay, what is it I want to write at the moment? And I was ill, so I thought the easiest for me is to write something that is comical. Because when you laugh through difficult times, when you laugh through challenges, they actually become easier. And so uh, I took uh, one, I would write a comedy about uh, learning how to play golf, something which I was terrible at, and I knew I would be bad. And I needed to accept I'm bad. <laughs> so death, yes, death by golf, how to die playing golf. Can you explain the title? The inspiration inspiration of of the death of it was, in a way, also the death of me, the death of perfection. Many of us do not get our ideas out. We do not grow. We do not dare to take the next step because we are afraid. Uh, And uh, fear is like death. It holds you in a cage. The fear to move, the fear to grow. And it's like uh, like a snake, really. well, I'm from Africa, I'm afraid of snakes. But one impressive thing about snakes, or something we can learn from them, is for a snake to grow, it has to break out of that skin. And that's a painful process. All change is painful. All growth is painful. And so, to me, I had to kill my idea of perfection. This is not going to be a perfect book, but I'm going to write it. And then I'm going to perfection on my next book, and I will keep growing. It's about taking that journey, that first step. So you, if you're considering being a painter and you cannot start painting because you have to do your masterpiece first, you're not going to get there. So that was my idea of it, to just get out there and, uh, and do the, the, the golf book as my start. And uh, then, of course, uh, with that as my experiment, I'm an engineer, uh, as Laverne said, I need to, uh, <laughs> I need to do, uh, or maybe some of you are in Nexus, you have to do the factory approval test, so the, pre, the, pre, you know, the prefabrication test, the factory approval test, the extended test. So Death by Golf was my factory approval test in a way to learn the system as well. How does it work to be a publisher? What do I need to do? Uh, who do I need um, in, in, my, in my range? Uh, What resources do I need? Where do I get the time? So it was my practice round. And uh, then the next round was, of course, to start looking at doing uh, a more serious book once I had uh, gotten through the first experiment. And that was taking action to write uh, Diversity Capitalism, uh, which I have not written alone. I've written with with a friend, Olaf Haraldseid. And the importance of doing something with someone is, you know, in Africa we say, at least in my part of Africa, one hand does not open the granary. There's just so much we can do alone. A lot of things require that we partner with the right people, we find the right people, uh, we find the right ideas, or we push ourselves into the resources that we need. No man does it alone. And so 
moving into this to write diversity capitalism with uh, with Olaf was also a good idea um, to do to do something with somebody, and uh, the partnership was uh, was great. Not just with him. Um, the pictures were taken by my friend Maria. She's a good photographer. I'm not. I can't do squat on that front. Um, we had our editor in the UK. She had the illustrator, a French lady uh, somewhere in rural UK. We had uh, text and layout in um, in Pakistan, uh, and we had front cover design in India. And so, working through different time zones, it was a lot of uh, it was a lot of challenges because sometimes you want to just change something really quickly. You've got to wait for the other guys to wake up, and that patience, you know. So it teaches you as well to, so when you surround yourself with other people, um, they also bring out, not, not only do they bring out their own capabilities, but uh, they also shape you in, uh, when, when the editor read the book, uh, the, the first copy of the book, or the first edition anyway, the draft, she came back with, uh, with comments, and, uh, which went back to my fear. I had written a book, that was clinically void of me. I had written an academic book with all the Oxford uh, referencing and uh, pretty good. It really was good, academically. But her challenge was, uh, to me, back to me was, where are you in your story? You are still hiding. You are not owning up to what you've done, the challenges you've met. If you write diversity capitalism, okay, let's face the fact. I'm a woman. I'm black, I'm in a very male uh, industry, I'm an engineer, I was two out of 82 in my class in Milan, I am a minority, and I'm diversity, well, and I also have very bad hair, which, <laughs> which puts me in a category of uh, rare breeds, so I needed to bring me into that, to bring that courage, yeah. Thank you. What you mentioned about diversity and looping it back to what you mentioned before, gardening. We've all noticed when you drive through Bairig and you see the big fields and there's one type of plant growing there, what happens to that field over the years? It gets deplenished of nutrients and it needs extra fertilizer. It needs all the stuff just to grow. But when you go into the forest and you go into the other fields and you have a diversity of plants and all living together and supporting each other in the ecosystem, then suddenly you have a self-sustaining ecosystem and a self-sustaining you know, world. And this is what I thought about when I saw your book, Diversity Capitalism. You are basically saying that you need this diversity, but not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's bountiful and it's profitable and you're going to get the most out of the least. So I was at the launch of your book. <laughs> Thank you. She's really underplaying. The launch was at the Circle K head office with lots of big wigs and CEOs and famous people. <laughs> so it was an absolute treat to be there and uh, meet the people and to see how everybody really loves you. You're so smart and genuine and real and you're not afraid to share the stories. On that note, you did share a story at the launch about your ancestors, and I was wondering if you would, because that was you putting a bit of your personal feeling story into a very factual academic book. And I think that that's the type of story that uh, definitely no one's seen on Netflix. 
That's a scary one. Well, and my mother was in the room, I must say. Um, <laughs> to me, uh, the issue of diversity really is about embracing the differences, not just tolerating the differences. And um, I looked at diversity from my own life, from my own roots, uh, in my history. Um, a lot of you may not know the history of, of Africa, and uh, most of you may know about the slave trade that was happening in West, West Africa towards, uh, towards America. Well, on the East African side, I'm from Uganda, we had our own slave trade with you know, our raided people being uh, shipped off uh, from Zanzibar and Port, uh, Port Said uh, uh, to, uh, to the East. And that was, that was a rampant problem. Now, I happen to have uh, a great, 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 great grandfather who was uh, unfortunately, um, I think he suffered polio as a child and uh, was lame in one leg, uh, very small in his build. He wasn't, he wasn't the man to survive, you know, if you say survival of the fittest. Um, but he was, uh, he was a smart man who uh, he learned a lot of trades while in, um, in the home, should I say. Now, uh, what I understand from my grandmothers is that when he was 16, uh, the girl that he loved was taken by the slave traders. And despite him being lame and little and not uh, hunkily built, she loved him. And that moved him. It became his life's purpose to bring her back and to stop the Arab slave traders. And one would think, you know, if the traders who are coming with muskets are taking all the able-bodied men, what is a crippled little man going to do? See, a lot of times we look at people in life, or, you know, rulers do learn, or this is this and that. We look at their physical abilities and already put them in a box that they are not capable. Now, what... what uh, we know from this man is that uh, he actually knew the arts of poisons. And because he was so small, he could hide in all kinds of places. And that's so he started his hunt for the Arabs. That was uh, hiding in swamps, in the hollows of trees, building snares, little weapons, darts with frog poisons and snake poisons. And, and he took a lot of Arabs. In that, in that process. So he would come to a village and say, you know, I'm going to help you. And they all look at him and they laugh at him. And, and, oh, if you do that, I'll give you my daughter. I'll give you a farm. I'll give you this. And he actually did it. So uh, the good news is I've got a very extended family. <laughs> <laughs> and in my tradition, uh, you cannot marry somebody who's five generations related to you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had to marry a white guy, to be sure. <laughs> I had to be sure that I was not marrying any of the descendants of, uh, of this man. So uh, when I look at physical ability, uh, I don't look at that as a mark of weakness. And I can see it myself when I was ill and I was, at the point, I, couldn't, I could no longer walk and I was crawling, I was on crutches, I was on uh, sticks for a long time. And it's actually in that time when I was crawling to the toilet that I did most of the writing for this book, uh, for the desk diaries. 
Because when I thought my world is falling apart, my feet are going, my health is leaving, and I want to leave something of me on this planet, I thought back to that link. And if he went against mighty men with muskets, with the smallest of what he could, just because he could not run, and here I am, I cannot run, I still have my PC, it's charged, I've still got Wi-Fi, uh, the toilet's not 10 kilometers away, it's just a few crawls away, like hell, I can do it. <laughs> so that was, that was a personal inspiration to, um, to fight on. And I, and I think it's, uh, you know, looking at it from your perspective of, you know, helping people grow ideas, I think a lot of times uh, we fall into the poor me category. We are dealt the cards we are dealt in life. Most of us are not going to be born with silver spoons in our mouths. Most of us actually have to work really hard to get to where we are going. Those are our cards. Deal with it, accept it, embrace it, and work with what you've got to that point in time. And basically, that's what I've tried to do. Uh, and uh, a lot of times, um, I heard people, uh, you know, people tell me, oh, you're so lucky you've done this. Oh, you're so lucky you're here. Oh, you're so lucky you've got this qualification. And a lot of times it really pisses me off because luck's, you know, luck just doesn't just jump out of the bush, you know. Luck is diligent work. And luck, if luck comes and finds you unprepared, you don't get anything. So my motto really is I'm going to be prepared. I'm preparing my seedlings. I'm going to put them in the wind. I'm going to give them the best possible conditions. So when luck comes, let luck find me prepared. Then you can tell me I'm lucky. But I'm not going to sit on my ass and wait for luck to come and prepare me and uh, push me to get me lucky because <laughs> I know it doesn't work. <laughs> That's so true. Um, another thing, when... When, when, when you're gardening and you see a flower suddenly grow out of the soil and it looks all amazing and beautiful, it looks very individual and isolated. It looks like, oh, it did this all on its own or by luck, like you say. But if you look deeper, there's the roots that are connected to the other roots of the other plants next to it and everything else. It's this huge interconnectivity and this energy which we all feed off but it's not really visible in the everyday life. It seems like luck or it seems like, like you're saying, a silver spoon or you know the right people. But it sounds like you managed to dig really deep down into those ancestors' roots all the way at the bottom to get the energy and the strength to write the books. And there's another part of your history that you've also been looking into, and that is the heritage from the knowledge and proverbs you've learned from your grandmother. Please tell us some about this. And I'm going to show you guys a couple of pictures. Uh, this is very, very interesting. We know now there are, there are dying languages in the world. There are villages that are disappearing. There are cultures that are disappearing. And we can all watch these documentaries on National Geographic and be like, oh, that's so sad. You know, someone should do something about it. But Winifred actually did. So she's writing a book to try to capture this inspiration and the words of wisdom from my grandmother. And I'm going to show some pictures. And then it's quite interesting. It gets quite political, people. So, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, 
I'm doing I'm doing this work with uh, doing this work with uh, Laverne. Um, the idea was actually people who've worked with me. Maybe it's even sipped into the Holden community. Uh, nobody gets away working with me and not listening to or hearing a proverb or some way to describe something. And uh, it's it's so into my heritage that um, that I cannot kind of uh, let it go because sometimes these expressions uh, explain much more than a whole tirade of words. And, uh, and as you said, my, uh, um, my traditional, my language uh, and most um, indigenous languages and history has actually gone from word of mouth. Uh, very little of uh, indigenous history is actually written by the people themselves. There's always the, the, the history from, uh, from the colonial side or from the, the, the powers, but uh, very little of our ancient uh, knowledge is written, and I feel like some of it is not appreciated. So when I look back into uh, in in my day to day work and in my preparations and uh, in some of the things that I have done, I've been able to see so much of the wisdom. You know, uh, my grandmother did not go to Harvard, but I can tell you she was smarter than a lot of CEOs I've met. She had more wit than a lot of people carrying. PhDs, because some of some of the wisdom from life, some of the common sense, and common sense is not that common anymore anyway, but some of the common sense that she carried was just remarkable. And I still use it today. You know, I, um, I have an MBA. I think what I learned, the, the key thing I learned from my MBA was eat with people. But I think there's... They, <laughs> but... I could have learned that from my grandmother. And uh, from this illustration, um, uh, the work, what I've done here is to write the proverbs and try to illustrate what it means and put it in a global context. Uh, so in, in this, uh, I think the, the first picture we have there is, uh, is a caricature of Obama and his grandmother. And it's, it's this, the, sim the simplicity of it is, I think the proverb is... Um, the purse of an old person is deep. And when I take that back to the context of diversity, there's so much wisdom and experience in our old people. And yet it's almost like you get to 67, you're, you know, you've, you've reached your expiry date. We can't wait to get rid of you. And, you know, we can't wait to get you off your home into Gamleyem and everything. And the wisdom and the capacity, the, the inbuilt knowledge. There's some knowledge that you cannot learn at school. The survival skills that these older people have. That purse is so deep. There are universities and encyclopedias. And I just wish we could tap into that and appreciate them and sit with them, you know, talk to them and get that. How many of you were lost during COVID because you didn't know what to do in, in the case of an emergency? You were all running for toilet paper. Your grandmothers survived the Germans. It was not toilet paper they stocked up. Potatoes. They knew stuff. They could survive with meager resources. We can't. And we are so educated and we are all waltzing around with our PhDs. And the real PhDs are sitting at home knitting and drinking coffee. And we don't see that. And that was one of the things I really wanted to to get in. And uh, in my current job, I think I have the oldest team in the company, and I wouldn't trade them for three guys from Harvard. <laughs> and that one, 
<laughs> I love that one. Um, uh, let's see. Some time back, uh, a chap posted on uh, on LinkedIn, <clears throat> and uh, I looked at his name, uh, and I just from his name, you know, from the from the naming system, I realized this guy is uh, is at least one of the Nilotics, so he's from the tribal group. So you'll understand what I'm writing. And so I wrote because the story was related to to women. I wrote uh, this proverb to him, and it says, "A female animal catches an animal." She is a hunter too. It's that simple, you know. When you when you when you go hunting, nobody's going to say that that's a male dog, that's a bitch. You know, they both go to the hunt, they both come home with the bait, and there is no uh, for a hunter. There's there's no separation except, of course, when she's uh, she's expecting and she 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 needs to stay home. So I wrote this proverb uh, to this uh, to this uh, as a response to this chap on on LinkedIn, and a few days later. Uh, and he's based in Canada. A few days later, he writes back to me and he says, uh, I had to ask my mother what this means because I do no longer speak this language. But my mother told me that this was the proverb that uh, that uh, grandfather used to justify sending her mother to school. And so it touched his mother so much because the explanation was, yes, she's a woman but she's able. And so I will send her to school as well, even if she's just a daughter. Uh, and I think when we go out to, uh, we talk about women's rights, we are approaching Women's Day and every, everything. Um, this, the discussion of the role of women has been going on for a long time. And in finding this proverb, in trying to see that even then they established that a woman was able. She was a hunter. She was a contributor. She was a protector. She was uh, she was a pillar of the family. That is important to bring that forward because I think a lot of times uh, we tend to uh, imagine or to assume, based on little knowledge, that some of these cultures have always been uh, very uh, anti-women or they've not supported the role of women in society. Uh, and I like that particular cartoon. It's Kamala Harris with uh, with Trump. Uh, and I, when I when I looked at uh, the elections uh, when Trump lost, there were quite a few uh, women. Uh, Tracy Abrams, among others, who uh, were quite instrumental in uh, rallying up uh, voters, and so systematically, the the the, the there was uh, and a lot of women voters turned up. So the role of women in capturing the situation was something I wanted to capture in that particular cartoon. Yeah. Now the the Winnie and I met because she was looking for a designer to. Designed the book, the illustrations were ready, you had your text. And I must say, putting it together was such an eye-opening journey. Um, every second page has got a new illustration with the political theme of somebody that you will recognize. And it's done in a way with so much humor and insights. And I think that's the balance. You know, they say sugar helps the medicine go down. <laughs> um I would love to know from you, when do you think this could actually be ready to sell? And would you be interested in coming back for us to have a book launch of it here? Shouldn't we do that? Yes. <laughs> and so, yeah, let's talk about that because we've discussed a few of the books. Let's hear where they're available. Are they for sale? Are they going to be ready? When are they going to be ready? 
I think I need to go back to uh, to the death part. Uh, <laughs> uh, this book's been more or less ready for a while, but I think because it holds such a special place in my heart, that last mile, that last step, you know, it's, it's taken some time to, uh, to dare to do it, but uh, I think we need to sit together for three, four hours, and we are actually ready to, uh, to launch it. And I would be, I'd be happy to come back and launch it here because this is where we've, uh, we've completed it or we've, we've done it. And it's been um, a very <clears throat> fun process working with you because, as I said, uh, I'm more or less colorblind, really. Uh, Design-wise, I know very little or nothing about design. I can put together two, uh, two lines. So to surround myself with people like you who can actually do it has made it possible to, to get it to this point. You mentioned something, it's Women's Day coming up. And I know myself, I sort of, I feel split in two when it comes to Women's Day and talking about doing things for women. I feel on one hand, we should do everything for people. And dividing between the genders and sexes and everything just helps to keep the division rather than to feel more included. But at the same time, Due to that, we are having this type of talk today and we get to know many other amazing people that will share their stories on that day. How do you feel about the whole concept of Women's Day? And if you had to create an event on that day, what would you do and who would it be for? I wish we didn't need to have a day that was dedicated to focusing on, uh, I wouldn't say equality, but equity equal responsibility uh, for everybody, not just for women, but for everybody as we are. Um, let me break it down a little bit. Uh, there's women, and then there's women. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is a difference between a white woman from an affluent family and a black woman from a poor family. So even in the cluster of women categorically, there are still layers and shifts in the pyramids. And um, there are still many of our sisters who are, I would say, at the cesspool of humanity, where we have decided you're black, you're poor, you're un uneducated, you've got poor health, you have a disability, then you're definitely not having the conditions that should... <laughs> that you're even able to get out of, even if you wanted to pick yourself up. So we still need to address uh, many of these issues. Um, three years ago, I was speaking uh, at an event for Self-Help Africa on uh, women in leadership and listening to the narratives of uh, particularly uh, black women, um, rural women, uh, agricultural women, and... Um, also because um, I'm, uh, I'm on the board of governors of, uh, of Partner Africa, which, you know, works with uh, uh, the rights of, uh, of African workers in the supply chain. So these issues are close to my heart. And listening to the narratives and reading the reports, looking at the stories, uh, it was almost like there was um, a domestication of the poor woman in the narratives and in 
it, you know, well, let me mean like uh, a domestication. Uh, the dog was once wild, and we tamed it. We 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 got it to where we wanted it to be, and that's the the, the domestication process. Uh, you are only a woman. The word only is a domestication. You have to accept that because I'm a woman, I'm only here. Or you are only a black woman. Uh, you cannot beat a man or you cannot be good enough. Or your education uh, in rural communities uh, will send the boys to school because you're just a woman. Or you you should, uh, you're... You are an unmarried woman, uh, or you are a barren woman, or you, you know, it's, it's all the, 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 the stigmas that we put to bring women down because now we are, it's like onions, we are delay you, we peel you off. Because you're unmarried, you're not worth much. Because you can't have children, oh, Lord, help you. Because you're poor, oh, gosh, you know. So, the, and sitting through that, listening to these narratives, um, I realize if you, you drum them in, you know, long enough, we start to believe that narrative. We all start to feel, I'm not good enough, or I'm not worthy, I, 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 can't, I can't be that great, I can't fix this, you know? And, and that's where fear comes from, like my fear as well. Am I good enough to actually publish this book? Why isn't it out? Because that domestication is also in me, you know? I'm not good enough. Uh, I, I question myself several times, you know, um, I can go into a situation and, oh my God, the CEO, oh, he's this... And you're so afraid. And then you sit there with them and you think, Lord have mercy. Was that it? There was no content to this person. But, but <laughs> you know, he's got the confidence of a man. He's not sitting with, you're only a man. He's never been domesticated. And he's not really been domesticated. So he's still in wolf mode. <laughs> <We are laughs> and you feel that. Yes. <laughs> you feel he's a, you know, the wolf and you're coming, you know, like the, not even the chihuahua because, you know, the chihuahua's got... <laughs> So that's that was what prompted me to actually write my first desk diary. I collected these statements, these narratives that we tell ourselves. I think there was a page that you had there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're not good enough. You're uh, you, you're not patient enough, or you get too angry. You're emotional. You're this and that. And for every one of those statements that I got from that seminar, I wrote an antidote to it. So I, so I think the first uh, the first week was. Only I can decide how far I want to go. Only I can say when I'm done. You know, trying to remind myself that I'm actually responsible for me. And it's up to me to create the barrier which I want to get to and get over it or get past it or break that ceiling. And I cannot let everybody else's word uh, put me down to, to determine that I have to have that accountability and that ownership and do it. And I think when we are going towards Women's Day, it's, it's still a great thing to pause and accept where we have come, where we are. We are very blessed. But the majority of women in the world, at least in, uh, if you look at demographically, uh, they are still far behind us. And we need that, uh, that sense of loyalty and togetherness to see how we can pull each other uh, up and uh, and stand up for each other because it's not just because I'm in a privileged position uh, does not uh, does not mean I should turn my back to the plight of let's say my rural African sister. 
as you say, when we go back to the roots, we are still part and parcel of each other, and our roots uh, touch each other. Her growth is my growth. How I'm seen is how she is seen. Nobody, you know, when I when I'm lying in in the morgue the day the Lord calls me home, all naked and ready for prepping, nobody's going to say, oh, that's a smart one. <laughs> what is, is, that's a black one. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so stripped bare, we're still the same, and we still owe each other that, you know, that, Loyalty and camaraderie to uh, to promote each other, to lift each other, to teach each other, to to share our resources with each other. So many good points. You, I think you got me to think about something. Maybe you'd have noticed a lot of the Women's Day events. You usually see women of sort of the same class and caliber attending them. You know what I mean? They sort of from the same cross section. Either it's for the middle class, the lower middle class, upper middle class, or from the same genre. There's actually very seldom I see women that need it the most. Do you know what I mean? That are the most excluded from the society or struggling the most that are present at these events. And this is a question I can put out to everybody either here today or people that are watching the video later. How can we create these events on Women's Day to gather a greater cross-section of women. Because it's only when we have, like we said, the diversity of the rose next to the peony, next to the tree, next to this, supporting each other, then you get the best growth and you get the best social ecosystem and emotional ecosystem and spiritual ecosystem. So, again, I want to ask you, you've been featured in our magazine Yes. So <laughs> that is a big thing. That way I feel like you really reached out and you managed to get to meet the person across the cross-section because it's so widely distributed that even if somebody coming in here could pick up that magazine and they would find your interview article in there. What was the response to that interview and who do you feel you managed to reach out and touch or impact? Did you get any feedback from any woman? Well, um, what can I say? I was terrified <laughs> to be featured. I think I almost didn't go out that day. Uh, I, I think there's that introvert side of me. It was a good story to have. Uh, I got a lot of feedback. Um, actually, I was almost too afraid to have that story out. I tried to pull, to pull it back. Uh, again, fear. Uh, one of the... One of the uh, the most uh, powerful reactions that I got was actually not from a woman, but from a gentleman who called me, and he was crying on the phone. He was so touched, he was crying on the phone, and he said, I could not help it, I had to call you. There is one of us who is featured. I can see you on the front, and I open, and there are five pages and it's not about war. It's not about crime. It's not about disaster. It's not about poverty. It's not about a disease outbreak. It's just a good story of somebody who has done something great. And that means so much. And incidentally, 
the article does not even mention my race. One word. There's nothing about race. It was this crazy engineer who <laughs> leaves a very lucrative job in Nexans <laughs> for, <a laughs> for, a, for a shaky life in, uh, in renewables. That was, uh, and then later on, um, feedback started coming in. A lot of, uh, you know, across, across the board, really, from, uh, from a farmer in the middle of uh, the other side, uh, somebody in the north of Norway, from students, from academics, from, uh, from housewives. From, it was just, uh, and I think the, the key... Uh, the, the 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 key uh, theme in the feedback was representation. We needed to be seen not for all the wrong reasons, and that gave people hope. I think there was a, there was a student uh, who got in touch and uh, explained that it was a she actually she was she was going through some challenges uh, in her studies and in her life, and uh, and she just said, you know what. I've got this shit. I've got it. I just needed to read that somebody could do it, and I've got it. And for me, that was enough. I just want to give some context to anybody that has uh, not been here before, or maybe you have been to Kulturusa and you've just been in the cafe. Um, Winifred is actually one of the reasons why I have a studio here. It's all interconnected. And this is the importance of connecting with people, you know, the roots, the energy, reaching out and being true to yourself. I came to visit for a cup of coffee. And uh, walking around the second floor, I met this wonderful lady named Brit that said to me, Oh, are you interested in Skalibli? Uh, and I was like, huh? uh, yeah, maybe. I was trying to impress my son that was with me. So I was like, okay. She was like, hard a contract. <laughs> I was like, okay, sign the contract. And then I was like, oh, shit. What on earth am I going to paint or draw or write? I have not done this in ages. And um, Winifred, as you can see the picture here on the side, I thought about this amazing woman that I met and how supportive you've been to me and how generous you are with your stories. Storytelling is so important. And it really inspired me to draw again and create again. And because of that, it's led to other jobs and other opportunities from that one image. You posted it on LinkedIn. We got hundreds of feedbacks, likes. And I just want you to know that every seed that you plant in yourself, you're adding to a community, you're adding to the ecosystem, you're helping other people to grow by growing your ideas. And it means so much. So please give a round of applause. And this is what, you know, our job is to help you grow your ideas, not just because it's going to make you feel better, but because it inspires other people to do the same thing. No idea is a bad idea. You just need the right people around you to get the right feedback and the right nourishment. Um, I'd just like to ask if you have any last words before we have a break. Last words sounds so serious. Famous last words. <laughs> 
Well, do I have any famous last words? No, actually, thank you so much for for having me here. You know, I was uh, I was just at home having uh, I don't know what I was doing when I got a, uh, a text message uh, of that picture of me on that wall, and uh, I was completely gobsmacked. Uh, I'm uh, I'm just a I'm a small person, and to suddenly find uh, a work of art that depicts me hanging on the wall with such great greatness was uh, just absolutely awesome and uh i really honored to at least have one of those pictures on my wall uh famous last words i'll be back 